Well, it's great to see you this morning. Good to have you with us, and especially if you're visiting for the very first time, really glad that uh, the Lord led you to spend some time with us. If you're looking for a church home, we would love to think you found it today. We've got a lot of great things going on here at IBC. We'd love to share them with you. But church family, in this moment, we're going to share God's word together, yes? Yep, that's what we do at Idlewild Bible Church. So I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke in the New Testament. Find the 23rd chapter of Luke. If you need a Bible today, you got out without yours, um, we're happy to share one with you. Just raise your hand and we'll make sure we drop one into your hands. There is a little note page in your bulletin. If you wouldn't mind, find that also. Uh, That might be helpful along the way. As this morning, we're going to head off in in a new direction together that centers around last words. You know, when a person utters their last words in in this world, those words are often remembered. And even if someone doesn't say anything at all, even that can be remembered as well. But we take note of the last words that people speak before they, they pass away. Because perhaps those words will reveal something that is uh, significant in their life, maybe a value or something that they're trusting in or wishing for. Uh, occasionally the innermost thought will, will come out of that moment, sometimes regrets, sometimes fears, sometimes great faith. Last words, we just tend to want to remember those. And uh, just as an example, just we've remembered a lot of people's last words, uh, just a collection of a few that I came upon. Uh, you know the name P.T. Barnum? He was a great promoter um, in, in days gone by. His last words as he was dying came in the form of a question. And it was this, how were the receipts today at Madison Square Garden? How would you like to be remembered for that? Reveals priorities, perhaps, in that man's life, however. President Grover Cleveland, his last words were, I have tried hard to do the right. Perhaps it was a wishful hope on his part that history would remember him as a president who did the right. Actress Joan Crawford, you have to be a little bit older to know that name, but she was filled with anger when her maid began to pray out loud for her as she was dying. Her last words, don't you dare ask God to help me. Uh, that's, a, that's an ooh for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Louis B. Mayer, the, the, the Hollywood film producer, revealed his philosophy on life and I guess we would say on death as well when he breathed out his last words, nothing matters. Nothing matters. What a sad way to step out of this life. General John Sedgwick, who fought in the Civil War, had his final words cut off in mid-sentence as his soldiers were running for cover from a Confederate sharpshooter. This is what he said. They couldn't hit an elephant at this dist. (laughs) Last words. And then I, I, I don't know when I first learned about Pancho Villa's last words, but they are memorable he was the Mexican revolutionary, um, and, and as he was dying, his final words are reported to have been, don't let it end like this. Tell them I said something. <laughs> Tell them I said something. Why would he say that? 
because we remember last words. Church family, this morning we are beginning a new series called, as you see it there on your note page, Seven Words. It's a series that uh, in the bigger picture I have as a hope and a prayer that it's going to help prepare our hearts and our minds to get ready for the celebration of Jesus' resurrection and Easter. Easter is just eight weeks from today. Eight weeks from right now, we're going to be, first of all, gathering out at Inspiration Point for a sunrise service, and then we'll come back here, and we're going to rejoice on that day in the glorious truth of the empty tomb. The angel said at the tomb, Why do you look for the living one among the dead? He is not here. He has risen just as he said. And we say, Amen and Amen to that. And we will celebrate Jesus' risenness. But we all know that before there can be a resurrection, there must be a what? There must be a death. There must be, in Jesus' case, a crucifixion. And so, as a run-up to resurrection and the celebration of a risen Savior, one way we can prepare our hearts perhaps a little bit better as a church family for that is to spend some time with Jesus during those terrible hours that he endured upon the cross. It will, it will cause our resurrection celebration to even be more joyous, is my thought. As his body was nailed hand and foot and his sacrificial blood dropped to the ground from the cross, purchasing salvation for you and for me, seven times Jesus spoke from the cross. And those words are recorded. They dropped from his lips, filled with meaning, with purpose, riveting, penetrating, sometimes shocking words, always beautiful. A moment ago we noted that last words get remembered. Well, The Holy Spirit has made sure that seven statements from Jesus on the cross would never, ever be forgotten. It's our joy to be able to share those words together. Each word that Jesus spoke, sometimes in a whisper, sometimes as a shout, I believe serves as an open window not only into his heart, but into the heart of our Heavenly Father as well. These seven words will teach us some of the richest and most profound truths that we cling to as Christians. We're going to learn about forgiveness, especially even today, as we consider Jesus' words from the cross, Father, forgive them. We're going to learn about saving faith in a new and rich way, as Jesus says to a dying thief, Today you will be with me where? In paradise. We're going to learn about saving faith and what that means. We're going to learn about love and family as Jesus tenderly cares for his mother. Even as he's hanging on the cross, he's, he's caring for her and concerned for her. We gain a, a, just a glimpse into what Jesus taking our sin on himself actually meant for him when we hear the words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There is the humanity of Jesus captured in the words, I am thirsty. As well as, as, as the absolute sufficiency of Jesus' redeeming work in your life and mine when he says, it is what? It's finished. The redeeming work is finished. And we're going to explore that. And then there's the certainty and the security of our eternity with God forever when Jesus says from the cross, Father, into your hands... I commit my spirit. 
Our goal will be to step into each of these seven solemn sentences. And then after the seventh one, we're going to add the glorious exclamation point of a resurrection. So that's the plan for the next few weeks. You want to join me on the journey? Yeah? Do you have a choice in joining me? No, you don't have a choice because <laughs> this is where we're going. All right. Well, I will warn you, at times it's going to be hard. Um, and you can already guess that it would be hard. It, it will be brutally hard um, to spend time with some of these cross words from Jesus, but, but necessary if we are to enter deeply into his death uh, and then celebrate his resurrection. So we begin this morning with Luke chapter 23 and verse 34 and the first of the seven words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. We say, Holy Spirit, you have sovereignly and purposely preserved this statement for us on the pages of your holy word. We ask you now to bring it to life. Make it real for us. As Clint said, not just words that we hear, but, but words that lead to what we do for your glory. And we all say amen and amen to that. And so as we begin, let's take the time here at the outset to set the stage upon which the seven words are going to be played out. I think that's important for us to do. So recall now the last 12 to 18 hours before Jesus will declare that his redeeming work is done with the words, it is finished. Let's recall now what the gospel record tells us about all that leads up to these, to these statements. We know from the record that Jesus on a Thursday evening shares the Passover meal with his closest disciples. And then from there, they and he went out to the Garden of Gethsemane where we're told that Jesus prayed. He poured out in his, his, his heart, his distressed heart, to his heavenly Father as he went through this intense spiritual struggle of, of knowing that very soon, not only is he going to die, but he's going to become sin for you and, and for me. And he's, he's going to take our sin into his very person. And the struggle internally for him is intense. Luke chapter 22, if you just skipped back there and you looked at verse 44, reads like this, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. What that tells us is the, the emotional and spiritual anguish that Jesus feels only hours from the cross manifests itself physically as he becomes soaking wet, literally with sweat, as he is praying out his heart. Verse 43 says, It is so intense that heaven actually dispatches an angel to strengthen Jesus at that point. Well, he's soon arrested in the garden and then... Um, he spends the next several hours all the way through the night uh, being moved from one, one tri uh, mock trial to another. If you know the, the details, his hands are bound. And, and these are the same hands that had healed many, many and, risen, and raised the dead. And at these proceedings, we're told that he will be blindfolded. He will be beaten. Um, handfuls of his beard will be literally pulled out by the roots. And so we'll add 
sleep deprivation and physical abuse and torment to the emotional and the spiritual trauma that he has already been experiencing. And then in an attempt to appease a crowd fanned into a rage by the scheming religious leaders, Pilate has Jesus scourged with with a a Roman whip, a a cat of nine tails, which is to say a whip that, that has bits of metal and bone embedded in the ends of it. And these would gouge and tear the flesh of Jesus back as he was being scourged. And there would be a, a blinding pain and significant loss of blood that would uh, just be, a, a, as a matter of course, having experienced this. And, and then still in the hands of the soldiers, we're told in the record that, that uh, they, mo- they make a mock crown out of thorns. And, and, and then they place this on Jesus' head and they press those thorns deeply into his scalp. And so more profuse bleeding unfolds and a purple robe is thrown over his torn shoulders and side and back. And then the suffering continues as the soldiers kneel before Jesus in mock worship. They spit on him, we're told. They beat him with a stick while they say, Hail, King of the Jews. Pilate then presents Jesus after all of this to the crowd still wearing the crown and the robe. And he says, here is the man. He's, he's just a man. By now, Jesus is seriously dehydrated. The loss of blood means that his heart must beat more rapidly to supply oxygen to his body. His respiration is, is now much faster and it's more shallow. Pilate caves into the unrelenting manipulation of the religious leaders and he condemns Jesus to death by crucifixion. And so the execution detail escorts Jesus out and we're told that he carries his cross laid over his ravaged back and shoulders uh, carrying that, that cross out to a hill called Golgotha. They lead Jesus, who at this point has now become so weak that he can't actually carry the cross all the way there. He falls numerous times. Ultimately, someone else is enlisted to carry it for him. He cannot do that. We come to Luke 23, verse 33, and there we're supplied with an almost cryptic statement about the moment that Jesus is actually nailed to the cross. In fact, in the Greek, only three words are used to describe that whole gruesome moment. Verse 33 says, And when they came to the place that is called the skull, or Golgotha, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. They placed Jesus in the middle. Do you ever wonder why they placed him in the middle? They placed him in the middle because that signified that of the three, he was the most worthy to die. It was a public statement. Now, we know much more about the specifics of a crucifixion from archaeology and from written records of the Romans than we do from the gospel record. On the ground, soldiers lay Jesus out on his cross. Then they drive the equivalent of construction spikes into both wrists and then through the top of both of his feet, making sure that his legs are slightly bent, and that will be important. Then they raise the cross up and they drop it suddenly into a hole prepared. Tremendous pressure is exerted on Jesus' shoulders, and in this position, his diaphragm cannot expand and contract properly. 
So in order to breathe, he must push himself up with his legs on the nails that are through his feet, sending excruciating pain coursing throughout his body. The result is that it forces a constant up and down motion, which is why the legs needed to be bent. An up and down motion, and and that is happening across those open lacerations on his back and his shoulders. Slowly the carbon dioxide builds because he cannot inhale and exhale enough or properly. And so there is this suffocating sensation that he feels the entire time that he's on the cross. His muscles start to cramp into knots, especially in his legs as the lactic acid cannot be carried away from the muscles. And his heart now is really racing. And his thirst, which had been tormenting, now becomes nearly unbearable. According to Roman historians, it was very common for those who were crucified to utter every blasphemy imaginable and call down words of wrath on those who were either involved in or simply watching their execution. Seneca, who was a contemporary of Jesus, recounts that those crucified would normally curse everybody, including their mothers and fathers. And the Roman philosopher Cicero writes that the executioners would sometimes resort to cutting out the tongue of the crucified so that the soldiers would not have to listen to the unending stream of curses. This is the scene. This is the stage upon which the seven words will now be played out. Not pleasant to talk about, but it's absolutely essential that we understand that. And so it is from this place of unspeakable horror that Jesus does the very opposite of what everybody else did and what the historians write about. He does not curse anyone. No one was ever more undeserving of what they were receiving than Jesus was in this moment. Not only is he innocent of any of the charges that have been falsely trumped up by his accusers, he was innocent of ever having committed even one sin. Yes? And yet here he is, hanging from a cross as a criminal. He was sinless, pure, holy God. In flesh. The son of the only true God of heaven. What happened that day on that hill called Calvary was from every conceivable vantage point unforgivable. A sinless son of God is being crucified. Was there ever a more horrific act committed in the history of the world? And yet, and, and yet Jesus utters no curses, condemns no one, levels no scathing rebuke, does not protest his innocence, does not cry out injustice or, 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 or a great evil is being perpetrated upon me. None of that. In fact, we read the words of Peter who was there and saw this whole terrible scene unfold. He tells us how Jesus responded. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. It was a crucifixion like none that anyone had ever seen. Instead of cursing, 
What does Jesus do in this moment of unspeakable agony? What does he do? He prays, doesn't he? He prays. And what does he pray for? Does he pray for himself? No, he prays for those whose actions have put him on this cross, which, by the way, includes not just those who were present on the hill that day. It includes who? It includes all of us, doesn't it? Thank you for saying that, because that is the truth. He prays for us. He doesn't curse. He prays. As he struggled to breathe, as he struggled to push through the pain and the exhaustion and the the savagery of it all, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Most scholars are in agreement that that this first of the seven words that Jesus speaks were probably spoken very near the outset of the crucifixion. Perhaps even as the first Spike was being driven into his wrist and the blood perhaps splashed onto the soldier's hammer. Jesus was forming the words of this prayer. His request was not for himself, but it was for them, the very ones who were doing this. His first thought is to to plead for those who desperately need forgiveness. When sinful humanity was doing its worst, Jesus was praying not for justice. He was praying for mercy. Is that not a window into the heart of our Savior? When the nails tore through his tendons, sending jolts of pain rushing throughout his body, he closed his eyes and he prayed out loud, Father, forgive them. When the cross dropped into that hole between those other two criminals, he was praying, Father, forgive them. When the soldiers gambled for his clothes as he hung above them, he prayed, Father, forgive them. As the religious leaders sneered and mocked, he prayed, Father, forgive them. As the crowds laughed at him and taunted him, he said, Father, forgive them. When the sign, this is the king of the Jews, was hammered above his head, he prays, Father, forgive them. No condemnation, no curse, a prayer. You know, if we flash back to the very beginning of Jesus' public ministry, some three and a half years before this terrible day, if you recall, it all began with a prayer. Jesus' public ministry began with a prayer as he was being baptized. Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. Now when all the people were baptized and when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened and the Holy Spirit descended on him like a dove and a voice from heaven says, You are my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In other words, what we see on Calvary's hill was nothing new. Nothing that we have not seen many, many, many times in Jesus' life. He continually flooded heaven with his prayers during his life and his ministry and urged his followers to do the same. And so as it all began, so now it ends with a prayer. And even more than that, a prayer of forgiveness. 
for his murderers. If that's not enough, hear the words of Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25. What a verse this is. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to what? To make intercession for them. Prayer permeates everything Jesus did, and it is still doing that, isn't it? Even as Jesus sits at the Father's right hand in this moment, what is he doing among many things? He's praying. He's praying for you. He's praying for me. He's praying for a lost world. Praying for everyone who is responsible for placing him on that cross. There's simply no better way for the seven crosswords of Jesus to begin than with a plea to Almighty God, not for himself, but for us. What a window into his heart. Let's go deeper into these words. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. If you flip that little note page over, we're going to discover together that there are no less than five significant truths that are concealed within this statement. Beginning with this truth, the first words of Jesus from the cross are, in fact, the fulfillment of prophecy. We want to notice that. We want to remember that. Um, You may want to, at this point, just keep your finger tucked here in Luke, but would you take your Bible now and run, make the effort to run all the way back to the left, clear into the Old Testament, until you find the book of Isaiah, please. Chapter 53, Isaiah 53. As you're making your way there, 750 years before Jesus was even born, God told the world what to expect when Jesus came and told, tells us what Jesus would experience when he came to be our Savior. Isaiah prophesied at least 10 things about Jesus in his redeeming role just in this one chapter, verse, uh, chapter 53. We read in verse 3, for example, that he would be despised and rejected by men. And he certainly was, wasn't he? We were told that he would be 750 years before. He would be a man of sorrows. He would be familiar with suffering, verse 3 says. He would be afflicted by God because of our sin, verse 4, verse 6, verse 8. He would be pierced for our transgressions. That's a, that's a prophecy regarding the, the, the crucifixion detail of being nailed to that cross, pierced for our transgressions. He would be oppressed and wounded and bruised by men, verse 7 says. And, of course, throughout his trials uh, and the treatment of the Roman soldiers, we read about and, and know of that. He would be led like a lamb to slaughter. He would be silent before his accusers, verse 7 says. You remember Jesus did not retaliate. He did not answer the charges that were, were brought against him. He was silent. He would be buried in a rich man's tomb, verse 9 says, and of course that happened. He would be a guilt offering in the eyes of God. He would pay sin's penalty and be that, verse 10. And then in verse 12, he would be numbered with sinners, though he was not a sinner himself. And, And we know that was true because he's hanging between two what? Two thieves. He was believed to be a criminal. So he was numbered with the sinners in that way. And then we read this in verse 12 as well. He poured out his soul to death 
and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many and makes what? Intercession for the transgressors. 750 years before the moment, God says, my son will be praying for you. That's fulfillment of prophecy, isn't it? Now, I don't know what that does for you, but let me tell you what it does for me when I, when I learn about that. It, this, this fulfillment of, of prophecy is just one more confirmation, not only that Jesus is who Scripture says that he is, but it also enlarges our confidence in the integrity of God's word. Agreed? When we read these, these prophecies and then we see them fulfilled in the person of Jesus, that just enhances our, our reliability and our confidence in the Scriptures. God tells us what he's going to do. He does it. And then he reminds us of what he did. Right? And so such assurance we have in our Bibles because God is in every detail. Second there on your note page, Jesus' prayer reveals the truth that the sinful human heart is truly what? It is truly blind, isn't it? The human heart infected with sin is a blind heart. Father, forgive them, Jesus said. They know not what they do. Jesus recognized that those who were crucifying him did not really know fully what they were doing. Now, God, through his ancient prophet Jeremiah, makes this statement in Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is what? deceitful above all things and beyond cure, who can understand it? While Jesus' enemies knew full well what it meant when they cried out, crucify him, crucify him, they truly were ignorant of the enormity of their crime. They didn't get it. They didn't know that they were killing the Lord of glory. They didn't know they were crucifying their Messiah. They were spiritually blind. They were self-deceived. Scripture says they loved the darkness rather than the light. Therefore, they did not recognize that the one that they were putting to death was on that day the light of the world. They didn't get it. But truth be told, though they didn't recognize Jesus for who he really was, they certainly should have recognized him, yes? They, They should have. The prophecies were so numerous and very clearly Jesus fulfilled them over and over and over again. His teaching was was powerful. It was profound. It was filled with wisdom and with authority and everybody knew that. This This was a teaching from God. His miracles were irrefutable even to the extent of raising people from the dead. And those dead people were walking around. Only God would do such a thing. His perfect life, his perfect love, incredibly compelling. Tens of thousands of people followed him because of his love for them. Pilate declared legally that Jesus was not guilty. The religious leaders resorted to false witnesses to accuse him. They knew he wasn't guilty. They had to bring in false witnesses to make their plan work. The people knew Jesus Less than a week before this horrible moment, they were cheering him as their liberator. And even the centurion who is overseeing the execution will determine that an innocent man was murdered that day. There was no excuse for the ignorance 
But still they did not know what they did. Because the sinful human heart is blind. It's blind. But we need to be clear here and say that ignorance doesn't mean innocence, right? Right? We agreed with that? Ignorance does not remove guilt. Today, you know, we have all become familiar with the phrase zero tolerance. And we know what that means, uh, a zero tolerance drug policy. Unfortunately, we live in a time when we understand that phrase very well. Wish we didn't, but we do. Very common in the world of professional athletics, zero tolerance drug policy. The athletes get tested all the time. The person in charge of the drug test says to the athlete, now you understand there is no excuse for your ignorance. This zero tolerance policy means that it doesn't matter if you, athlete, say that you didn't know that that supplement or that drug was illegal. It does not matter. If it's in your system, you will be disqualified if it's in your system. Zero tolerance. Ignorance is not innocence. It's not an excuse that removes your guilt. Well, church family, I would submit to all of us that we all have something in our system. Every one of us have something in our system. What is it? It's sin. Uh, It's sin. We have no excuse. We cannot plead ignorance because ignorance is not the same thing as innocence. God has revealed himself and he has made it plain. He has a zero tolerance for what? For sin. Notice that Jesus doesn't pray for his from his cross that the father would just forget about what the people are doing to him because they really didn't get it. He doesn't pray that God would forget. He prays specifically that God will what? Forgive. Because though ignorant, they are also responsible. They are ignorant, but they are guilty. We're all responsible, right? You and me, we're all responsible for God, before God for what we did to Jesus because we all sin. That leads to a third truth tucked into Jesus' prayer, and that is this. We have a great need today, don't we? We have a great need. The magnitude of our need. Because our hearts are blind, because they are hardened by sin, our need of forgiveness is so very great We're all sinners before a God who has a zero-tolerance sin policy. We're all there. We need forgiveness. Romans 3.23 removes any question about that. For all have what? And fallen short of the glory of God. Key word there, all. (laughs) That includes me. That includes you. Nobody gets left out. It's not just those who were directly involved in the crucifixion of Jesus who stand guilty before God for his son's death. In a very real sense, we were all there when Jesus was executed. We were all there. You were and I was. In the time of the Second World War, Germany bombed England without mercy, if you know your history. Destruction was massive in England and Among the many buildings that were destroyed in those bombing raids was a very old, very cherished church 
called St. Michael's Coventry Cathedral. After the war, a new cathedral was built alongside of the ruins of the old one. But in the ruins of the old one, the people erected a cross made out of the burned wood of the old church. And then they etched into the old stone of the, of the church the words, Father, forgive. Many at first were bothered by the leadership's decision to put those words, Father, forgive. They wanted it to be, Father, forgive them. Right? And in fact, saying, Father, forgive the Germans for all that they have done to us. But the leadership saw a bigger picture, didn't they? They understood that all have sinned, not just the Germans. All are guilty. All are in need of the Father's forgiveness flowing from Jesus' prayer. Father, forgive. Period. Now, it's important to understand that Jesus' plea for his killer's forgiveness does not guarantee the immediate and unconditional forgiveness of everyone who participated there that day. We're all clear on that? You bet we are. We have to be. He was interceding on behalf of all who would repent and turn to him as Lord and Savior. This was not some blanket forgiveness that he just was asking God to pour out on everybody. His prayer was that when those persons who were present that day and all who have come since when they finally realize the enormity of what their sin has done to him, and they seek the Father's forgiveness for that sin, the Father will not hold the murder of Jesus against them anymore. We know this is exactly how Jesus was thinking when just a few weeks after the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, Peter is preaching uh, to the very people that were present that day. He's preaching in Jerusalem in Acts chapter 3. And at one point, talking to many who were part of that that moment when Jesus was on the cross, participating either as a spectator or maybe as a perpetrator, Peter says this to them. Acts chapter 3, verses 17 and 19. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did all your rulers, But when God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out. You're guilty, but you can what? You can repent. Why can you repent? Because Jesus prayed. Jesus prayed. Well, you talk about courage. That took courage to say that that day, didn't it? You're guilty of crucifying your Messiah, but you can repent. Those who clung to their hatred of Jesus would not be forgiven. But those who would repent were forgiven. That hasn't changed, has it? That has not changed. Praise God. And then, then the fourth truth that comes out of this, and this truth is, is not instantly apparent, but it's very important. Up until this point, uh, if you recall, Jesus always forgives the sins of others. He does that personally. He prays. He asks for their forgiveness himself. 
numerous times we read about this in the scriptures. He will, he will forgive someone. In fact, it's one of the reasons that the religious leaders hated Jesus so much because he would forgive sins. And, of course, in their mind, if you forgave sins, that was another way of saying that you were who? You were God because only God forgives sin, right? So Jesus was making a claim to be God, and they hated him for that. So many times he did do that, forgave people of their sin. So why now does he ask the Father to forgive instead of directly pronouncing forgiveness himself? Do you ever wonder about that? There really can be only one answer to that question. It's because Jesus in this moment is identifying himself as the means by which forgiveness will be made possible for you and me and for all those who were present then. He will become that perfect sacrifice for sin that will preserve the holiness and the the justice of, of God and at the same time permit God to then grant forgiveness to all who put their faith and trust in Jesus alone. He yields the role of forgiveness to the Father as he is nailed to the cross because he will become the payment that makes the forgiveness possible. He's identifying himself as our sacrifice. He who needed no forgiveness died for us who were condemned to hell without it. 2 Corinthians 5.21. You couldn't find a more powerful proof text in fact, so powerful. Can we just read it aloud together, church family? Right off the screen. 2 Corinthians 5.21. What does it say? God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. They are ignorant but not innocent. I now bear their guilt. I become their sin so that you can forgive them when they realize who I am and they come to you in brokenness and in repentance and in faith believing. And all of that flows seamlessly into the fifth truth. For in the words, Father, forgive them, is the triumph of divine love. Remember again that Jesus requests forgiveness for those whose sin is putting him to death immediately after he has been nailed to the cross. This is when he prays. When sinful mankind had done its worst, when the blindness of the human heart was being displayed in all of its ugliness, when the creature was executing the creator, boy, think about that. Divine love triumphs, right? It triumphs. Father, forgive them. Why would the Father forgive them? Why? It's one word. Love. Love. Romans 5.8 But God shows His love for us in that while we were still what? Christ died for us. Father, forgive them. Why? Because you love them. You love them even while they are killing you. <laughs> Jesus says in John fifteen thirteen, greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends. He calls us his friends. 
And think about this love in full operation. As the prayer of Jesus prayed is, is answered by the Father, even as he hangs from the cross. I mean, he hardly voices the prayer before God is answering the prayer. Think about that. One of the thieves who's next to him in the last few moments of his life cries out in saving faith. And what does Jesus say to him? Today, you're going to be with me. Where? In paradise. Was that prayer not answered? Father, forgive them. As that thief receives eternal life. What a gift from the Father to the Son. Granted, even as he hangs from the cross. This prayer was answered when the centurion in charge of the execution put his faith in Jesus at the foot of the cross, saying, this, this, this man truly was the Son of God. Yeah. This prayer was answered in a profound way on the, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. The church is born, we're told, and 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus. Well, who were some of those 3,000? They were there on that Friday morning, weren't they? In fact, a cool verse. I've just read it past it so many times, but no more because I've highlighted in my Bible. Acts chapter 6, verse 7. It actually tells us that a great number of the temple priests have come to faith in Jesus and confessed Him as their Lord. Was Jesus' prayer being answered? Oh, man. And this prayer was answered when Paul, seeking to destroy this growing movement of Jesus, dramatically is converted on the road to Damascus and he becomes the mouthpiece of Jesus to the whole non-Jewish world. Was Jesus' prayer answered in the person of Paul? You bet it was. And this prayer of Jesus was answered the day you, brother, sister, said, I'm a sinner and I need Jesus to pay my sin debt. I trust him alone for my salvation. The day you said that, this prayer was answered. Do you believe that? Father, forgive them. And today, around the world, 70,000 more sinners will become answers to Jesus' prayer. Today. And tomorrow, there will be 70,000 more around the world who will be an answer to Jesus' prayer. And the day after that, and the day after that, and the day after that. What a a window into the heart of our God are these words, Father, forgive them. Well, as we wrap things up here, all of our reflecting on Jesus' first cross word leads to a question. What's the question? Have you been forgiven? Have you been forgiven by God for what you did to Jesus? Have you been forgiven? Years ago now, there was a billboard that showed up uh, just before Easter alongside of a busy freeway in a large city. It pictured Jesus hanging on the cross, very much like this. And in big, bold letters, the caption at the bottom of the billboard said, It's your move. It's your move. What a clever way to, to put out a profound question. Have you been forgiven? If Jesus can forgive 
those responsible for killing him on that Friday. If God can forgive those who murdered his son, do you think he can forgive you? (laughs) Do you think he would want to forgive you? Why? Because he loves you. Yes. I would want you to know this morning or that, 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 that everybody in this room, everybody in this room is an accomplice to the murder of Jesus. Everybody. We've all sinned and we've thus put Jesus on the cross personally and individually. No one here is better than you. No one here is worse than you. If you can't answer the question, have I been forgiven then you need to know today you can be forgiven. Amen? You might be thinking, if you only knew my life, if you only knew what I've done, and and, and I would just simply say, we don't need to know. And God already knows. So you're not going to surprise Him. And He is saying to you today, Put your faith in my son. Trust in his life for your life. I forgive you. Ephesians 1 verse 7 says it so beautifully. In him we have redemption through what? Through his blood, through the blood of Jesus shed on the cross. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Think of God's riches at Christ's expense when you hear the word grace. God's riches at Christ's expense. It's a great way to think of the word grace because that's exactly what it is. The price has been paid for us in full by Jesus. The way to heaven has been opened and it's our move, right? How many of you have made that move? Show of hands. Praise God. How many of you would, would, and I'm not asking you to raise your hand now, but, but how many of you cannot raise your hand with great confidence and say, yes, Jesus has paid my debt. If that be you this morning, today's the day and now is the time to say I am done with doing this thing called life without God in my life. Today's the day. It's your move. Jesus has prayed for you. He has died for you. He has made the way for you. And now it is up to you to give your life to Him in simple, saving faith. I come with nothing. I'm a sinful person. I'm guilty before heaven. But you, Jesus, paid my debt. I am forgiven. And I'm going to spend eternity with you because that's true. Our time is gone. There's a whole other place we could go with this. Those we need to forgive, right? Because there perhaps are those we need to forgive. And, and Jesus is our premier example. Having forgiven us, how can we not forgive others, right? That's there on your page. We'll let you explore those verses a little on your own. Another time, But our time is gone. But I, I just want to end in this place. So would you bow with me now? And let's go to our Heavenly Father. And, and I want to talk specifically to the one or more than one that might be in our room right now. And, 
and you're that one who is, who's thinking, if you, if, you, if you knew it was in my life, you would know that God would not want me. I want to, I want to speak to you in this moment. I want, to, I want to just implore you to push through that thought that you are beyond saving. I appeal to you to listen to the words of Jesus from the cross. Father, forgive. And then you put your name right after that. Father, forgive. Bill, Mary, Jim, Susie. Whatever your name is, Father, forgive. Because that's what Jesus has done. That's the prayer he prayed for you. Allow him into your life through simple faith. You don't have to have all the answers in this moment. You just need to know that God loved you enough to die for you so that you could be with him forever. Cross over today from spiritual death to spiritual life. You make the move with the help of God. Father, for that one or more than one that maybe made that decision, even in this moment, help us now to know how to help them best. We love them. We, we want them here with us. We want to help them grow in their relationship with you. And oh, how we thank you, Lord Jesus. How we thank you for your prayer over us as you hung from that cross. We love you, but only because you loved us first. And we all say together, amen and amen.